I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Plastics. You're plastic. Cold, shiny, hard plastic. Welcome to Plastic Week on Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. And we really can't say there are pristine places left on Earth. Plastic pollutes the highest peaks and the deepest parts of the ocean. It's literally raining microplastics. Our week of coverage begins with a woman in Bailey, Colorado, Jackie Elder. She submitted a question through Colorado Wonders. I know a lot of ways to recycle and to reuse things, but what options are there for me to reduce the amount of plastic that I'm consuming in my life? All the packaging, she says, for food, shampoo, makeup. Well, we tracked down some big thinkers to answer her question, including a supply chain expert who says consumers can only do so much that this is industry's problem to solve. First, though, we paired Jackie up with a woman who's taken extraordinary steps to reduce her plastic waste. Erica Prather is holding on to every bit of plastic she has used since the start of the year. And she schlepped it all to CPR, showing up in our lobby with a trash bag, a giant cardboard box, and a big suitcase. Ryan, you're looking at the pile of the petroleum past, as we like to call it, which is all of the plastic waste my partner and I have generated since January 1st, 2018. This is the plastic you have used as a consumer. And why would you not have thrown this away? I didn't want to throw it away because I wanted to know what it was like to live with my own trash. My way of thinking of it is sort of this moving meditation of if... I'm not living with it. Someone else is living with it. Someone else is living with the effects of it, whether it's being incinerated or in a landfill or whatever, or wildlife is living with it in their belly. And so it's not only an experiment of living with your waste, but also how much it's kind of always thrown at me, even if I'm trying to avoid it. And so I just wanted to bury myself in that, I guess, literally, like... (laughs) You know, like if you order something from Amazon, it's going to come wrapped in something. And maybe you didn't ask for that piece of plastic necessarily, but then you have to make the choice. Do I want to keep ordering things off Amazon? Like, that's just one example. Well, I very much want you to meet Jackie, who has this question about reducing plastic waste. Hi. Hi. Do you want to look what's in there? Sure. Let's take a look. Um, okay. Chip bags are pretty much impossible. Floss, floss. Um, We've got cheese in here, bath salts. Even if it looks like paper, it usually has a plastic lining and there's no way to get around it. Sometimes you go to a party and someone hands you a plate of food and then you have to take it with you in your bag. Wait, when you go to a party and you use a plastic plate, you bring it back to the home trash pile? That's correct. Or like a spoon or a fork or anything else. If, um, yeah, I'll bring it back. I'll put it in my satchel and... Bring it back to the plastic pile. (laughs) When you do this exercise and you say, I'm going to notice that I'm going to put it all in a pile or whatever, you start seeing how even the smallest things in your everyday life, like floss and toothbrushes and razors, are all made of plastic. So that's a crazy part of it. So my question, if we would have collected all your trash from 2018, the first six months, let's Mm -hmm. say, what would be different about that pile versus today's pile? Yeah, what have you been able to improve upon when it comes to plastic consumption? I love that question. I think it would be a lot worse. I think obviously when you're living with it, it's like, oh God, do I really want this? Do I really want this bag of chips? Because now I have to look at the bag for the rest of the year. 
And so, yeah, last year when we weren't doing this experiment, it was obviously much larger. We also got a dog, though, within the last year, and that's actually a horrible conundrum. You cannot really improve that unless you make your own dog food. Pretty much all dog food comes in a plastic bag. And there's fake-outs that look like the chip bags, but... What do you mean fake-outs? In other words, they look like paper, but they're actually plastic? Maybe they are paper on the outside, but usually it's kind of melded together with a plastic like lining. And so that actually makes it even more difficult to recycle because it's nearly impossible to actually like separate those materials. Yeah, for me, the greatest challenge, I think, looking around my house is finding ways to buy food without plastic because I know that I can make a lot of things for myself and I can shop from the bulk section and I can prepare things, but... At the end of the day, I'm not going to be making croutons from scratch. You know, there's a lot of items that I still want to have in my life, but I don't think it's realistic for me to make them completely from things I get in the bulk items. So I'm wondering how you navigate that and how you've been able to reduce plastic in your food consumption. Food is a really hard one. The bulk section is definitely your friend, like with those little cloth bags. I don't know if you've invested in those, but those are awesome. In other words, when you buy bulk, you don't use the plastic bags supplied at the store. No, um, and actually Sprouts is now carrying the little cloth bags that have like a drawstring on the top. So you can just keep reusing the bulk section bags. I think a lot of it though is like not only noticing it, but there's a slowing down aspect and even like a human element to it. So let's say that you want this type of meat and it's wrapped in plastic. Maybe you can go to the deli counter and then you actually have a human interaction and then they wrap it in like a brown paper actually. And sometimes it still has like a waxy, plasticky thing over it, but it's way less than like the huge heavy styrofoam on the bottom. Your shampoo and conditioner question though, I'd love to help you with that one. Yeah, for sure. We bought the bar shampoo. My husband and I both have very long hair and actually the bar shampoo worked great for him. I think because his hair is less processed than mine, you could say. (laughs) But for me, it didn't really work. I didn't like the texture that it left. So I'm ready to experiment with different options. But for now, my shampoo is still in a plastic bottle. Okay. Shampoo. So There are around five, maybe at this point more, different refill stores around Denver. I think one thing you'll you'll find is you don't have as much choice as you do in like whatever, a retail store. But it's awesome because you're supporting a local business. A lot of times, not only are things in bulk and you can refill, but they are supporting other local businesses. Like here's a local soap that's made right here in Denver. So they have all these different products that you can invest in that aren't just refill oriented, but you can totally refill your shampoo stuff at Joyfill, Homefill, Eco Mountain. There's a bunch of them. One thing I've been wondering about is makeup. Um, I haven't really been able to find any makeup brands that sell without packaging. I'm wondering if you have a solution for that. I'm really lazy and I don't wear makeup, but I have seen different kinds of products that have no plastic or packaging at Joyfill. It's been on my list to go and check out these places. Like literally I've been to their website, I've read through the page, it shows everything you can refill and I just kind of dream about it with me and my reusable containers. And then, I don't know, something's held me back from driving all the way out there. It feels like a chore and that's something that I need to get over and I think a lot of us do need to focus more on this. And so what you're talking about are stores that have bulk products. Do you pay more for that kind of stuff? It is more expensive to refill your shampoo and conditioner at a refill store as opposed to buying it at Walmart. And how have you settled that for yourself? Well, there's a lot of different dichotomies tied up in this plastic conversation, and one of them is privilege. And I think if we're privileged enough to be discussing this, that it's okay to pay a little bit more 
to support a local business that's trying to make a dent in this big problem. But you realize that's not going to be the case for everyone. Certainly not. It doesn't sound really practical, especially if you're coming from Bailey. Yeah, I think that's one of the challenges that I have. I'm about 45 minutes from the nearest town that has a grocery store. So that's where I do most of my shopping. To get down to Denver's usually about an hour and a half trip. So I think about that a lot. You know, at what point do you draw the line and say, you know, driving 50 extra miles is not worth the one plastic bottle or the few plastic bottles that you're going to save? I wonder, Jackie, why you're so concerned about plastic. What are the motivations for you to be asking these questions? Well, in the last few years, I feel like I've been awakening to the fact that everything that's in my home and everything I'm spending money on and putting my attention on is a choice that I'm making. And I'm changing the world in that little, tiny, itty-bitty way. And I've made a lot of changes to my diet, to the products that I'm putting on my body, in my body. And then I think plastic is the next step forward in that evolution. And there's so many news stories right now about how plastic is on the tops of mountains. It's at the bottom of the ocean. It's literally raining plastic in Colorado. And it feels inescapable. It's everywhere now. And if people like me don't wake up and start looking in the mirror and saying, what can I do to change this? Then who's going to do that? Erica, what do people say when they find out that you are amassing? And, and let me just say that you display this prominently in your home, uh, that you're amassing the plastic you use for a year. Sometimes it's an uncomfortable discussion of where people can feel judged or have to, you know, look at maybe their own choices or maybe kind of feeling that that it's really extreme, that it's extreme to be collecting it and living with it, and it's ridiculous. But my answer to that is I think it's more extreme to ignore it. Um, I think it's more extreme to not have this conversation and normalizing this problem and not really facing the fact that we're all living with it in some form of another is actually the wackier thing. What are your reasons for doing this? Plastic is a fossil fuel product. And we all know that Fossil fuels are driving climate change, so that's kind of the environmental angle that we can't keep relying on a product that, you know, is essentially driving the planet and then ourselves <laughs> into extinction. But also, you know, the places where fracking occurs and refineries and then also at the end of plastics life, sometimes unfortunately in an incinerating facility, those are oftentimes in low-income neighborhoods. And so as a consumer, it's so out of sight, out of mind, but when you get that package from Amazon and there's plastic packaging around it, think about that it had to first be fracked out of the earth and then fossil fuels were used to make something out of a fossil fuel. And then it probably happened in someone's backyard who doesn't have the ability to have a voice to advocate for themselves. So we can see into this open trash bag of plastic, we can see into this box, but that suitcase is still zipped up. Will you open it up? Uh, with pleasure. <laughs> It doesn't really seem like that much trash and that much plastic. I think they're doing an awesome job. I see in here as she opens up the suitcase, I'm seeing a lot of packaging materials, like from things you would buy online. A handle for a kite, which is an interesting piece. Um, some candy wrappers, a hummus container, dog food bag, takeout, a big container of maple syrup. I think we actually got in a fight about this. We did. We did. 
This is Erica's partner, Kevin, who happens to be watching in the CPR lobby. I was at Costco admiring a very affordable organic bottle of maple syrup. And I called Erica and I said, I'm going to do it. She said, no, get the glass one. I said, but it's twice as much and it's half the size. That's crazy. Isn't that an important point too? To look for glass when you could be buying plastic? Do you find that? Oh, yeah. Uh, With a lot of stuff. Um, Syrup, mayonnaise. And, you know, we talked about this earlier. You don't want to make everything yourself. That is a huge pain in the butt. But some stuff like salad dressing, that's easy. It's just like, okay, it's, you know, mustard and vinegar or something and make your own salad dressing in two seconds. But yeah, there's a lot of stuff that's in glass. It might be a little bit more expensive, but you can also reuse those glass jars. We do that all the time. We, we go after the bulk section and dump one of those bags into an old salsa jar and it's full of lentils on the shelf. So we've talked about bulk buying and refill stories as solutions. What else have you been able to learn about your own behavior that can be changed? I think one thing you learn is forgiveness of yourself. What pains me is even though this might not seem like a lot to you, I know that over 90% of plastic is not recycled and so... Being easy on yourself, you know, when somebody gives you a candy, your mom gives you a Reese's peanut butter cup because it's your favorite thing for your birthday, take it, eat it, enjoy it. What have you stopped buying altogether? Fruit, no more berries, blueberries, strawberries, raspberries, blackberries. I think that's a little bit sad. I think it's sad in our society that we have farmers producing something that's organic and delicious and people love and then us as consumers can't necessarily buy that without doing something bad to the environment and I wish that there was a way to to connect those two people in a way that's friendly to the earth. Yeah for sure but there's a lot of stuff that I I haven't given up. Um, There's a lot of stuff I always feel on the fence with like tofu and chips You know, everyone's like, make your own chips, but it's not a kettle chip. You know, it doesn't have like that crunch. I guess what I'm hearing from both of you is that modern life is plastic consumption, no matter how hard you try. Do you think that's true? I 100% think that's true. Yeah, I agree. I've tried to become more aware, especially knowing that we were going to do this chat. I've been looking around my house and I literally see it everywhere. Every cabinet you open, you're like, wow, there's more plastic. There's more plastic. And they're not things that are out of the ordinary. I think that if we walked into anyone's house, we would probably be confronted with the same thing unless they were really going down a radical path of trying to eliminate a lot of stuff. Are there resources online, uh, Erica, that you've turned to Are there communities of like-minded people? Yeah, actually, there's My Plastic Free Life. There's a wonderful woman that's put together kind of a whole checklist, the Plastic Pollution Coalition, uh, the Story of Stuff. These are all websites you can check out that have people's journeys. You know, one thing I think that I want to kind of say is Kevin and I have talked about this a lot during our, our journey with it. Kevin is your partner. Kevin's my partner. Uh, making it fun, making it a game. Instead of saying, tomorrow I'm going zero waste, tomorrow's the end, taking it a little bit out of time and then just saying like, hey, what if this time I only get three pieces of plastic at the store or something like that, turning it into something fun because it can be so overwhelming and depressing and I think it's important to um, have joy in the resistance. What do you think of that? It makes me feel excited and motivated to meet somebody else who 
shares my concerns and also my willingness to take personal action. I think for me, when I think too much about it and look too much at my plastic and at all the dumpsters everywhere and the plastic everywhere, it can feel really daunting. Do you feel like you're making a difference, Erica? I think the difference comes in the conversation starting piece because ultimately this is about the fossil fuel industry. I don't think we can have this conversation without talking about that, without talking about the corporate accountability piece because that's really at the end of the day what's going to make the biggest shift. Erica Prather there helping us answer Jackie Elder's Colorado Wonders question about reducing plastic consumption. Erica's partner Kevin Larkin also made an appearance. The couple just moved from Colorado to Tucson. And yes, they carted their pile of petroleum past with them. The websites Erica mentioned are linked at ours, CPR.org. This is Plastic Week on Colorado Matters from CPR News. Stuff we use once and throw out may then spend hundreds of years littering the planet. Plastic is raining down on us, choking wildlife, and raising questions about risks to human health. With that in mind, communities are banning plastic bags and straws. But all of this focuses on the consumer end. Jack Buffington's not having it. He's a supply chain expert, teaches at the University of Denver, and his new book is called Peak Plastic, The Rise or Fall of Our Synthetic World. Buffington is head of warehousing and fulfillment at Miller Coors. The views you'll hear are his own, though. Let's start off with some numbers. Today around the world, plastic is recycled at about a 7 to 9% rate. And that's probably the best case scenario. This will be higher in some communities and lower in others. But on average the vast majority of our plastic is not being recycled? Right. So it's being recycled at a 7 to 9% rate. At the same time worldwide, it's growing at about a 9% rate. That is, we are consuming more and more plastic each year. Right. And that's part of the reason why these mitigation schemes are not enough. To give you an example is if in countries like the United States and some countries in Europe, if 10, 20% of the population are doing these schemes that are good, and it's only a certain percent of the plastic, all we're doing is treading water. And given the size of the problem and the growth of plastic in especially the developing world where all the plastics go in the ocean, we need bigger solutions than that. So, so much of the plastic in the developing world is ending up in the ocean. Correct. You have written a book called Peak Plastic. What does that term mean to you? What the term means is there is a point in time where the usefulness of plastic in society will be overwhelmed by the impact to the environment and ultimately to the economy. That is when the good that plastic does uh, is just outweighed by how bad it is for our health, our environment, etc. Right. And as it increasingly has a negative impact on the environment, it will increasingly have a negative impact on the economy. We see that it's raining plastic. Yeah, and I think that's the scary part is that when we think about plastic waste, we think about what we see on a beach. If we go somewhere very nice, we are a little bit uh, discouraged that we see plastic on the beach. But it's what we don't see that's the bigger problem. What do you mean? Uh, Microplastics that are in our water, plastic that comes down in rain smaller elements of plastic that are undetectable. And because they're undetectable, it's very difficult to understand what impact it could have on our health and our life. So you can't say for sure that our health is being affected by this? I can't. 
But I think we have to understand that if there's 380 million tons of plastic that's produced every year, it's only being recycled at a 7 to 9% impact, and it's a synthetic substance, so it's not a part of nature, that it probably may have some bad impacts that we're not aware of. When do you think we reach peak plastic? I put a date out there of 2030, um, and that's a worldwide date. If you look at some communities in Asia, we've already reached peak plastic. Help us understand why. Um, There's communities, you know, some of the developing communities like in the Philippines, if you see some of the pictures where there's people literally wading in plastic where uh, the water that they drink is consumed with plastic and it's that impact on their life. You write in Peak Plastic that half of a Boeing 787 Dreamliner is plastic. Right. And this is a great thing because this means that less fuel will be consumed because the plastic is sturdy enough to support a Dreamliner at the same time light enough that it helps reduce fuel. Exactly. And this is the kind of constant struggle, I think, for people that the thing we do that we think is good also has its own impact. We know that flying eats up a lot of fuel. We feel better than that they're building planes out of plastic. And yet, here we have the plastic issue. This is Plastic Week on Colorado Matters from CPR News. Some parts of the world have reached peak plastic. Others are close. This is the point at which plastic's usefulness is outweighed by its environmental and health consequences. Peak plastic is also the title of Jack Buffington's new book, He's a supply chain expert from Highlands Ranch and joins us for Plastic Week on Colorado Matters. Before the break, we were talking about a conundrum. Plastic makes stuff lighter and stronger, like airplanes, and that saves fuel. But plastic itself is made from fossil fuels. I asked Jack to wrestle with that. I don't think we need to wrestle with it. I think it's a false narrative. I think it's a problem that we can solve for in a different manner. And the problem is... We're spending so much effort on these mitigation schemes. And what's emerging, Ryan, in both technology and policy is we have these opportunities to solve the problem through closed-loop systems. Closed-loop systems. So this is key. We are producing, and we have produced over time, just tons and tons of plastic. And I have always wondered, why not just use this stuff we've already made? Why do we make new stuff? Well, because in the past, and actually still the case in the present, the stuff that we make isn't able to be reused because the technology and the supply chain aren't in place to be able to reuse it, like is the case for other materials like aluminum. Like aluminum. So I remember growing up in California, us kids would collect aluminum cans and get the deposit for them. The idea there was that that aluminum had value, it was going to be used again. That is largely not the case with plastic. Correct. So an aluminum can can become an aluminum can again, or it can become a car, or it can become a building or a plane. The problem with plastic is, is that the way it's been designed and the way it polymerizes in the whole supply chain, it's very difficult to do that in scale. Is that why the recycling rate is so low? That's correct. But the good news is that there's emerging technology to be able to change that And if we can create a supply chain and to scale this, we can solve this problem. And create a closed loop system in which new plastics don't have to be made or that just is shrunk dramatically. Yeah, this is a great story. So if you do you mind if I tell you? Not at all. I love a great story. (laughs) Okay. The problem with plastic is in order to reuse it, you have to break down these long polymers 
in order to be able to create it back into a general hydrocarbon. Is a polymer basically like the DNA of plastic? Yeah, actually, your your DNA is a polymer. Okay. So it's the same thing. So uh, there's technology that's coming into place where instead of trying to separate all these different types of plastics to co-mingle, to take a large percent of the plastic, let's call it 80%, okay. to break it down into a useful hydrocarbon as a fuel in order to be able to reuse it again. Now, some people are concerned about turning plastic into fuel. Climate change, right? I mean, you're releasing greenhouse gases. But let's remember that fuel is the feedstock for plastic. So you can turn this plastic into fuel. And actually, you can go on YouTube right now and see guys in labs that are taking plastic and turning it into oil. But what you could do is you could take this plastic, break it down into this fuel, and then turn that fuel back into a plastic, and now you have a closed-loop system. Ah, so it's not being released into the atmosphere. You're making new plastic with it. Correct. I can imagine people thinking, okay, so you've created a closed-loop system of plastic. You're still fundamentally using something that's based on fossil fuels. Why not go to, like, a bioplastic? I remember, Jack, a while ago, I had a pen made out of corn. Right. And this is being touted as like the new plastic. Uh, We are going to hear about a company, for instance, that makes a biodegradable ring for six packs. It strikes me that leaving plastic uh, as much as we can out of the equation might be another route. Yeah. So let me talk about both of those cases. The problem I have with corn-based polymers is you're taking food away from people. And I have a problem with a world where we don't have enough food and efficiently grown food that we're using for plastics when we don't have to. The problem I have with biodegradable products is what a lot of people don't understand is the process it takes to biodegrade takes a long time. And by the way, if this plastic goes into the ocean, things don't biodegrade, they photodegrade. So if you create something that's biodegradable, it's going to be a problem in the ocean and vice versa on the land. So these are some of the technical challenges that we face with all these ideas that sound great. My thought is, take the plastic we already have in existence, since we have trillions of dollars of plastic in landfills, in oceans, let's create a closed-loop system for this versus different loops. Oh, so are you saying that you could take the plastic that's in the environment now and feed it into this closed-loop system? Yeah, it's beautiful, So it's a cleaning and a reuse. Right, so why extract corn that could be eaten or why come up with all these different feedstocks? Let's use all the waste that's out there in order to create these closed-loop systems. How far are we away from this plastic pie in the sky? Well, like I mentioned, uh, you can already go and see people in labs in Japan and Germany and even the United States that can do this at a lab scale. Two problems. One is, from a technical standpoint, it hasn't scaled large enough. And number two, we need the supply chain system wrapped around it to make it efficient, to make it comparable to what's happening today. To make it profitable. That's it. Is this what you tell your students? Yes. And actually, what I really want to focus on with my students is how supply chains can solve problems. So supply chains have been used to give us all these great things in our lives. But let's expand the purpose of supply chain, not just to give us a bunch of stuff, but also to solve world problems. If you were taking this to industry, where would you start? Yeah. So I've been involved in some industry consortiums talking about this, not only in consumer product companies, but also with the oil companies. And I think all of these companies understand the magnitude of the problem. 
But what they have to do is to understand that the problem's just going to grow in its nature. And if they don't solve it, someone else is going to solve it for them. Some other innovator is going to come in and they're going to lose market share. So why not be the innovator to help solve for it? It strikes me, though, that the motivation for the oil companies isn't there. The more oil that they recover and can charge for, uh, the better off they are. That's true. Um, But think about the challenges they face increasingly of pulling oil from out of the ground. So if they have this feedstock that's everywhere and, by the way, helps us improve our environment, it's going to reduce their costs. It's going to make people see them as better stewards and better stakeholders. And it's a win-win for everyone. Is there any company, any place you can point to where this is happening beyond a YouTube video scale? So what's interesting about this, and I, and I got my PhD in Sweden, so Sweden's often known as the most environmentally friendly place in the world. But they're also the most focused on the mitigation schemes. So we're talking what, like straw bans? Yeah, all that stuff. Bag bans? I think the place you're going to see the greatest innovation is in Asia. And this is by necessity, Ryan, because plastic is, is growing at a 9% clip. They're polluting their waterways. They're polluting the oceans. And that's why I mentioned peak plastic is hitting well before 2030 there. So with necessity comes innovation. And maybe profit. Definitely profit. Jack, why don't we wrap up uh, just by quoting a line from your book. We've used plastic for a century. 8.3 billion tons of plastic waste has flowed into our natural ecosystems, an amount equal to 25 thousand empire state buildings. The entire planet is being plastic wrapped into submission. What plastic do you have on you right now? I just want to look at that before we go. So <laughs> I, have, I have my phone case. Okay, your phone case. Yes. Uh, the lanyard that we gave you to walk into the building has a, like, a plastic sheath. Right. Oh, you have plastic on those buttons. I do. I, I drove in in a car that has plastic tires because it's synthetic rubber. And what a lot of people don't understand is that synthetic rubber is also what's used for chewing gum. You know, we used to use tree sap. Um, but now on a pack of gum, it says gum base. Uh, that's something called polyvinyl acetate, which is a plastic. Has working on this transformed how you view the world? I have to say, since reading your book, it's almost like I have on special goggles that just indicate where plastic is around me. Yeah, it's funny. People who read fiction books to escape, I think the real world's stranger than fiction. And you start to think of all these things in our life that's plastic that's synthetic. And they're all useful, but they're all completely nature-proof. And so we're changing the nature of our world. Uh, they're calling you know, this new age the age of the Anthropocene. So it's the man-made impact on epological time. I've even heard this referred to as like the plasticine. Right. The plastic period. Right. And again, I think it's so easy to create these new products because they're so useful and consumers want them. We just have to strike a balance where what's good for us, which is good for the environment, which will be good for our future society. Thanks for being with us, Jack. Thanks, Ryan. Jack Buffington of Highlands Ranch is a professor of supply chain management at the University of Denver. He's written Peak Plastic, The Rise or Fall of Our Synthetic World. Jack joined us for the start of Plastic Week. Tomorrow, building a better disposable coffee cup. Right now, so many of them are lined with, yep, plastic. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
In the late 80s, the AIDS epidemic started to take hold in gay neighborhoods in cities like New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. For these people, marijuana was a cheap, accessible way to treat the symptoms of AIDS. Little did they know that they would pave the way for more than 30 states to legalize medical marijuana today. Medical marijuana and the AIDS epidemic. On the latest episode of On Something, subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Coloradans who can't afford the rising cost of traditional homes may turn to mobile homes, but it makes them susceptible to sudden evictions and hidden costs. This week, the Colorado Sun is reporting on this issue, partnering with reporters statewide. The Sun's Jennifer Brown is here to share what they've found. And nice to see you again, Jennifer. Thanks for having me, Ryan. So The Sun and other outlets statewide dedicated a lot of resources to this. Why is it a story you wanted to tell? Well, the affordable housing crisis is always a big story in Colorado. And this year, um, one aspect of that that got a lot of attention at the Capitol was the mobile home situation in the state of Colorado. And we decided that that was one that was largely ignored for years, for decades, and a new place that we could talk about affordable housing in this state. The industry likes to call these manufactured homes. According to your reporting, there are more than 100,000 people living in about 900 mobile home parks in Colorado. You spoke with quite a few of these folks. Uh, Let's understand, first off, how important mobile home parks are as like a reservoir of affordable housing. Mm -hmm. What we learned was that they are the largest form of unsubsidized affordable housing in Colorado and in America. And what we learned that was very important is that the number of mobile home parks across the state is declining. And if you think about the fact that many of them originated as RV parks owned by mom and pop, you know, local couples or families, and they've had them for all of these decades, the infrastructure is worn out, the sewer, the water, the electrical, a lot of these things are falling apart. So what's happening is a lot of these mom and pop owners have sold out to developers. Um, You know, they're baby boomers at this point, so that land is being used for other things. And we also learned that a lot of them are selling out to corporations or to private equity firms, um, investors, if you will, who want to own a batch of mobile home parks. More on that in just a little bit. But uh, mobile home parks also run the gamut from places that might be you know, fairly expensive and well-kept to ones that are in need of more TLC. This is not just one monolithic kind of community. No. I mean, one of the big takeaways for me is it's it's not the stereotypical Um, concept that you would have. Um, We visited many mobile home parks across the state, really varied. Um, What we learned is that a lot of them are out of our view on purpose. They're, you know, zoned out of Hmm. um, what we see in our daily lives. And um, once you go into them, you learn that these are really a lot of working, um, poor families in Colorado. We also learned that it's a 
popular place for immigrants to live or people that don't want to apply for subsidized affordable housing. Um, We called this series uh, Half the American Dream, partly because of a quote that our partner in Fort Collins um, got, but because that's how they step into home ownership as the working poor. I think about your reporting over time, Jennifer Brown, the other reasons we've brought you onto this program, and it's so often about Colorado's vulnerable populations. Do you see this story as another aspect of reporting on people who are somewhat susceptible to economic forces, uh, to predatory practices? For sure. I feel like a word we kept hearing a lot while we were reporting was captive. A lot of people in mobile home parks, especially if they've lived in one for years and then it gets purchased by a corporate owner who's not local, they feel like the rules and regulations start piling up and the expense. Um, these corporations may try to come in and clean up the park and therefore the the lot rent goes up and these people feel very stuck. They can't just, they might call it a mobile home, but they can't hook it to a hitch and pull it out of there. Um, that costs thousands of dollars. So this is stuck. so important because the word mobile home gives you this sense that, well, gosh, if, if the park is being uh, eliminated or the prices are going up tremendously, you just move the home. But that, that really is not the case uh, for no. a lot of people. I think that rarely happens that they move the home. They might be able to sell the home um, in its location. Um, what we heard a lot of, too, was that people, um, and maybe they don't speak English well or don't know the law well, but they would be threatened by the park manager or owner with, you must paint your house, fix your skirting, remove this tree, do something that costs you money, otherwise we will evict you. And without understanding the law, they would just leave and leave whatever equity they had remaining in their home right there because they were afraid and thought they had to go. Help us understand the ownership here. So did you mostly find that people owned their manufactured home and, and of course, not the land beneath it. Is this also a lot of rentals? Help us understand the market. Mostly the people that we talked to owned their own home and had bought it in a lot of cases decades ago. And really all they do is depreciate in value over time. But um, So they're more in that regard like an automobile than they are a traditional home. The, the loss of value over time is supposed to the gaining of it. For sure. Yes. And they don't, uh, of course, own the land underneath it. That belongs to someone else. Right. And that's what causes a lot of the strife between the the park owners and the residents. It's a constant battle in some parks in particular of you need to fix that. Well, why should I remove a tree? This is your property. You know, why do you tell me to paint my house? It's my house. And Mm. um, the law in Colorado has been... um, pretty weak all around. And the residents have felt for decades that they have no power. So there was a a bit of a power shift in legislation that passed this year. We'll talk about that in just a bit. But I know that one uh, tension that set up this discussion at the legislature unfolded a little more than two years ago. Uh, That's when CPR News reported on a mobile home park, Denver Meadows in North Aurora, Uh, Even a very young resident seemed to understand the vulnerabilities. I have heard that um, the the manager wants to take out the houses. 
At that time, the owner of that park, which is on prime real estate near Light Rail and Anschutz Medical Campus, wanted to close it down, perhaps redevelop with apartments and a movie theater. Uh, What has happened at Denver Meadows? And then uh, bring us to what has changed legislatively. Well, the residents of Denver Meadows, they did band together. They repeatedly talked to the Rory City Council. Um, They were part of the impetus for some of the discussion at the Capitol. Um, Those people have all had to move. They did win some sort of um, compensation based on the value of their homes when they left. So some of them did get a bit of money, uh, the remaining folks who were still there when they had to move out um, this summer. Did any of them take their homes with them, or for the most part, did they just leave them behind? I think for the most part they left them, but I'm not sure. Okay. So what has changed in the law? So the law gives um, residents a bit more time to cure a notice of eviction, or, you know, if you don't fix this, we'll start eviction proceedings. Now they have more time uh, to take care of that. It also gives them more time to leave or to sell their home or to move their home if they have been evicted. So um, it used to be that they had to leave pretty quickly upon eviction, which might mean that they just left their house behind. Um, Now they have more time. It also will set up a system by which you can lodge a complaint and perhaps work this out um, with the between the resident and the park owner. And previous to this law, the only thing you could really do is get an attorney and go to court, which was out of reach for a lot of people. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And the Colorado Sun has partnered with journalists statewide to tell the story of mobile home parks and their residents in Colorado. Two of the people you focus on in this series are Frank Rolfe and Dave Reynolds. They're the fifth biggest owners of mobile home parks in the nation. Uh, They also run a business, Mobile Home University, based in Castle Rock, Colorado. Uh, Rolfe came under scrutiny earlier this year on Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. Rolf is completely shameless about the degree to which his business depends on having a captive customer base. You know, the, 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 the customers are stuck there. They don't have any option. They can't afford to move the trailer. They don't have three grand. So the only way they can, they can object to your rent raise is to walk off and leave the trailer, in which case it becomes abandoned property and you recycle it, put another person in it. So you really hold all the cards. So the question is, what do you want to do? How, how high do you want to go? You spoke earlier about the fact that these parks have become investments, and it sounds like he's teaching others that this is an investment, you know, how to get involved in it. What was Rolf's reaction when you spoke with him? Our partners um, in this project at the AP got an interview with Mr. Rolf, and I mean, his side of the story makes sense also. I mean, he buys these parks that really are run down in some cases. The infrastructure is not up to code in some cases. The roads might be gravel. There might be park or homes that are dilapidated and falling down. And to get to bring them up to modern times, he puts um, some investment into them and therefore charges more lot rent. So I guess in, in one way to look at it is they're not being sold to a developer and turning into something entirely different. But you can see there how that causes drama between the residents and the owner. Well, the phrasing, too, in, in that clip from John Oliver's program, you know, 
mm-hmm. he, it sounds like he sees them as sitting ducks to some extent. Right. And I think it's pretty telling when you listen to some of the Momo Home University um, pieces online and different times that he's been quoted that when he thought he was just training his um, trainees who were wanting to own a park rather than a, an interview with a journalist. Uh, this is a statewide issue. Uh, are there differences, though, in the issues that, say, mobile home park residents on the front range deal with from, say, those in rural areas? Mm-hmm. I think on the front range in the cities, a big issue is, of course, redevelopment, like the case in Aurora with Denver Meadows and um, this prime real estate along the light rail line. I think in Colorado's resort towns, they are working very hard, some of them, to try to save these parks from being completely gone because they've watched them dwindle. And in some of these places, Vail, Aspen, Steamboat Strings, they're um, resort workers, restaurant, hotel workers, um, even people who work for the city and county government rely on these places Mm. um, to have affordable housing in a resort town. So uh, I think there's different things going on all over the state um, in different ways. And it was great for us to have um, a statewide project with different newspapers, you know, Uray, Greeley, Fort Collins, um, Steamboat. Uh, We had radio partners and TV. And I think it really helped capture um, all those different aspects of this issue. And the series, I think, wraps up tomorrow. Do I have that right? Yes, tomorrow's our last day. Jennifer, thanks so much for sharing this reporting with us. Thanks so much, Ryan. Jennifer Brown of the Colorado Sun joining us to discuss her latest project, and it's a project that belongs to many people, a look at affordable housing in Colorado as told through the lens of life in mobile home communities. Finally today, music from a multi-instrumentalist couch-surfing troubadour. Gideon Irving has made a name for himself performing small shows in folks' living rooms. His fee? A couch to sleep on. In the last several years, I've played and stayed in over 600 homes in nine countries on four continents, and I find all my hosts through audience referral. I've toured on a bicycle, pulling a trailer of instruments behind me, on rollerblades whilst pushing a modified shopping cart. This August, I'll begin a 3,000-mile journey across the American West, bringing my new show to rural homes, traveling entirely on horseback. Irving raised more than $35,000 to fund this year-long tour, which recently began in Creed, Colorado. He'll perform his unique blend of music and theatrics at homes across the West. Five-foot blonde on the stage wearing leather With a genesis choir and I couldn't forget her well, old enough to be my mother But she's so fine, no one, no other That takes me home like it ain't no thing She got a diamond for a doorknob and inside I'll bling She likes boys, I like women She got a tub so big and we both got swim on my mama, my mama, my mom we the might have been flowers to pass the hours. Cobra and mongoose in utter devotion. Fighting forever, epoxy together. Inside of this otherly Shanghai notion. Gideon Irving, 
He's a folk artist traveling through Colorado and the American West on horseback. And he shares his music for the price of a place to stay. Thanks for staying with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm on with me for the polar bear. Lo, lo, lo.